Chapter Twenty Two of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Twenty Two Recovered from the Sea. The spot where the projectile sank under the waves was exactly known, but machinery to grasp it and bring it to the surface of the ocean was still wanting. It must first be invented, then made. American engineers could not be troubled with such trifles. The grappling irons once fixed, by their help they were sure to raise it in spite of its weight, which was lessened by the density of the liquid in which it was plunged. But fishing up the projectile was not the only thing to be thought of. They must act promptly in the interests of the travellers. No one doubted that they were still living. "'Yes,' repeated J. T. Maston incessantly, whose confidence gained over everybody, "'our friends are clever people, and they cannot have fallen like simpletons. They are alive, quite alive, but we must make haste if we wish to find them so. Food and water do not trouble me.' They have enough for a long while. But air, air, that is what they will soon want. So quick, quick! And they did go quick. They fitted up the Susquehanna for her new destination. Her powerful machinery was brought to bear upon the hauling chains. The aluminum projectile only weighed 19,250 pounds, a weight very inferior to that of the transatlantic cable which had been drawn up under similar conditions. The only difficulty was in fishing up a cylindrical conical projectile, the walls of which were so smooth as to offer no hold for the hooks. On that account Engineer Murchison hastened to San Francisco, and had some enormous grappling irons fixed on an automatic system which would never let the projectile go if it once succeeded in seizing it in its powerful claws. Diving dresses were also prepared which through this impervious covering allowed the divers to observe the bottom of the sea. He also had put on board an apparatus of compressed air very cleverly designed. There were perfect chambers pierced with scuttles, which, with water let into certain compartments, could draw it down into great depths. These apparatuses were at San Francisco, where they had been used in the construction of a submarine breakwater, and very fortunately it was so, for there was no time to construct any. But in spite of the perfection of the machinery, in spite of the ingenuity of the savants entrusted with the use of them, the success of the operation was far from being certain. How great were the chances against them, the projectile being twenty thousand feet under the water! And if even it was brought to the surface— how would the travellers have borne the terrible shock which twenty thousand feet of water had perhaps not sufficiently broken? At any rate, they must act quickly. J. T. Maston hurried the workmen day and night. He was ready to don the diving dress himself, or try the air apparatus, in order to reconnoitre the situation of his courageous friends. But in spite of all diligence displayed in preparing the different engines— in spite of the considerable sum placed at the disposal of the gun-club by the government of the Union, five long days, five centuries, 
elapsed before the preparations were complete. During this time public opinion was excited to the highest pitch. Telegrams were exchanged incessantly throughout the entire world by means of wires and electric cables. The saving of Barbicane, Nickel, and Michel Ardin was an international affair. Everyone who had subscribed to the gun club was directly interested in the welfare of the travellers. At length, the hauling chains, the air chambers, and the automatic grappling irons were put on board. J.T. Maston, Engineer Murchison, and the delegates of the gun club were already in their cabins. They had but to start, which they did on the 21st of December, at eight o'clock at night, the corvette meeting with a beautiful sea, a northeasterly wind, and rather sharp cold. The whole population of San Francisco was gathered on the quay, greatly excited, but silent, reserving their hurrahs for the return. Steam was fully up, and the screw of the Susquehanna carried them briskly out of the bay. It is needless to relate the conversations on board between the officers, sailors, and passengers. All these men had but one thought. All these hearts beat under the same emotion. Whilst they were hastening to help them, what were Barbicane and his companions doing? What had become of them? Were they able to attempt any bold maneuver to regain their liberty? None could say. The truth is that every attempt must have failed. Immersed nearly four miles under the ocean, this metal prison defied every effort of its prisoners. On the twenty-third instant, at eight in the morning, after a rapid passage, the Susquehanna was due at the fatal spot. They must wait till twelve to take the reckoning exactly. The buoy to which the sounding line had been lashed had not yet been recognized. At twelve, Captain Blomsbury, assisted by his officers, who superintended the observations, took the reckoning in the presence of the delegates of the gun-club. Then there was a moment of anxiety. Her position decided, the Susquehanna was found to be some minutes to westward of the spot where the projectile had disappeared beneath the waves. The ship's course was then changed, so as to reach this exact point. At forty-seven minutes past twelve they reached the buoy. It was in perfect condition, and must have shifted but little. "'At last!' exclaimed J. T. Maston. "'Shall we begin?' asked Captain Blomsbury. "'Without losing a second!' Every precaution was taken to keep the corvette almost completely motionless. Before trying to seize the projectile, Engineer Murchison wanted to find its exact position on the bottom of the ocean. The submarine apparatus destined for this expedition was supplied with air. The working of these engines was not without danger, for at twenty thousand feet below the surface of the water, and under such great pressure, they were exposed to fracture, the consequences of which would be dreadful. J.T. Maston the brothers Blomsbury and Engineer Murchison, without heeding these dangers, took their places in the air-chamber. The commander, posted on his bridge, superintended the operation, ready to stop or haul in the chains on the slightest signal. The screw had been shipped, and the whole power of the machinery collected on the capstan would have quickly drawn the apparatus on board. 
the descent began at twenty-five minutes past one at night, and the chamber, drawn under by the reservoirs full of water, disappeared from the surface of the ocean. The emotion of the officers and sailors on board were now divided between the prisoners in the projectile and the prisoners in the submarine apparatus. As to the latter, they forgot themselves, and, glued to the windows of the scuttles, attentively watched the liquid mass through which they were passing. The descent was rapid. At seventeen minutes past two, J.T. Maston and his companions had reached the bottom of the Pacific, but they saw nothing but an arid desert, no longer animated by either fauna or flora. By the light of their lamps, furnished with powerful reflectors, they could see the dark beds of the ocean for a considerable extent of view, but the projectile was nowhere to be seen. The impatience of these bold divers cannot be described, and having an electrical communication with the corvette, they made a signal already agreed upon, and for the space of a mile the Susquehanna moved their chamber along some yards above the bottom. Thus they explored the whole submarine plain, deceived at every turn by optical illusions which almost broke their hearts. Here a rock, there a projection from the ground, seemed to be the much-sought-for projectile, but their mistake was soon discovered, and then they were in despair. "'But where are they? Where are they?' cried J. T. Maston, and the poor man called loudly upon Nicol, Barbicane, and Michel Ardin, as if his unfortunate friends could either hear or answer him through such an impenetrable medium. The search continued under these conditions, until the vitiated air compelled the divers to ascend. The hauling in began about six in the evening, and was not ended before midnight. "'Tomorrow!' said J. T. Maston, as he set foot on the bridge of the corvette. "'Yes,' answered Captain Blomsbury. "'And on another spot?' "'Yes.' J. T. Maston did not doubt of their final success, but his companions, no longer upheld by the excitement of the first hours, understood all the difficulty of the enterprise. What seemed easy at San Francisco seemed here in the wide ocean almost impossible. The chances of success diminished in rapid proportion, and it was from chance alone that the meeting with the projectile might be expected. The next day, the 24th, in spite of the fatigue of the previous day, the operation was renewed. The corvette advanced some minutes to westward, and the apparatus, provided with air, bore the same explorers to the depths of the ocean. The whole day passed in fruitless research. The bed of the sea was a desert. The twenty-fifth brought no other result, nor the twenty-sixth. It was disheartening. They thought of those unfortunates shut up in the projectile for twenty-six days. Perhaps at that moment they were experiencing the first approach of suffocation. That is, if they had escaped the dangers of their fall. The air was spent, and doubtless with the air all their morale. "'The air, possibly,' answered J. T. Maston resolutely, "'but their morale, never!' On the twenty-eighth, after two more days of search, all hope was gone. This projectile was but an atom in the immensity of the ocean. They must give up all idea of finding it. 
But J.T. Maston would not hear of going away. He would not abandon the place without at least discovering the tomb of his friends. But Commander Blomsbury could no longer persist, and in spite of the exclamations of the worthy secretary, was obliged to give the order to sail. On the 29th of December, at 9 a.m., the Susquehanna, heading northeast, resumed her course to the Bay of San Francisco. It was ten in the morning. The corvette was under half-steam, as if regretting to leave the spot where the catastrophe had taken place, when a sailor, perched on the main-top gallant cross-trees, watching the sea, cried suddenly, "'A buoy on the lee bow!' The officers looked in the direction indicated, and by the help of their glasses saw that the object signalled had the appearance of one of those buoys which are used to mark the passages of bays or rivers. But, singularly to say, a flag floating on the wind surmounted its cone, which emerged five or six feet out of water. This buoy shone under the rays of the sun as if it had been made of plates of silver. Commander Blomsbury, J.T. Maston, and the delegates of the gun club were mounted on the bridge, examining this object straying at random on the waves. All looked with feverish anxiety, but in silence. None dared to give expression to the thoughts which came to the minds of all. The corvette approached to within two cables' lengths of the object. A shudder ran through the whole crew. That flag was the American flag. At this moment a perfect howling was heard. It was the brave J.T. Maston who had just fallen all in a heap. Forgetting on the one hand that his right arm had been replaced by an iron hook, and on the other that a simple gutta-percha cap covered his brain-box, he had given himself a formidable blow. They hurried towards him, picked him up, restored him to life. And what were his first words? Ah! trebly brutes, quadruply idiots, quintuply boobies that we are! What is it? exclaimed every one around him. What is it? Come, speak! It is, simpletons, howled the terrible secretary. It is that the projectile only weighs nineteen thousand two hundred fifty pounds. Well, and that it displaces twenty-eight tons, or in other words fifty-six thousand pounds, and that consequently it floats. Ah, what stress the worthy man laid on the verb float, and it was true. All, yes, all these savants had forgotten this fundamental law, namely, that on account of its specific lightness, the projectile, after having been drawn by its fall to the greatest depths of the ocean, must naturally return to the surface, and now it was floating quietly at the mercy of the waves. The boats were put to sea. J.T. Maston and his friends had rushed into them. Excitement was at its height. Every heart beat loudly whilst they advanced to the projectile. What did it contain? Living or dead? Living, yes, living, at least unless death had struck Barbicane and his two friends since they had hoisted the flag. Profound silence reigned on the boats. All were breathless. Eyes no longer saw. One of the scuttles of the projectile was open. Some pieces of glass remained in the frame, showing that it had been broken. 
the scuttle was actually five feet above the water. A boat came alongside, that of J.T. Maston, and J.T. Maston rushed to the broken window. At that moment they heard a clear and merry voice, the voice of Michel Ardin, exclaiming in an accent of triumph, "'White all, Barbicane, white all!' Barbicane, Michel Ardin, and Nicol were playing at dominoes. End of chapter.